Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. In her stunning new book, The Barber of Damascus, Nouveau Literacy in the 18th Century Ottoman Levant, Dana Sajdi, Associate Professor of History at Boston College, presents a riveting narrative of the intersection of literature, religion and history in early modern Muslim societies. She does so by focusing on the chronicle of a common barber in 18th century Damascus, Shahabuddin Ahmad ibn Budair. Through a close reading of the intellectual and political conditions that gave rise to such forms of nouveau literature, and by carefully interrogating the themes, tensions and reception of this text, Sajdi's analysis provides a fascinating window into the complexity and diversity of knowledge traditions in the early modern context. Most importantly, this book serves the immensely important task of bringing into view non-ulama archives and imaginaries of history and history writing. In our conversation, we discuss the key themes of this book, such as the concept of nouveau literacy, the literary and political disorders in 18th century Damascus, Ibn Budair's biography and intellectual milieu, the emergence of non-ulama chronicle writers, and the later reception and reworking of Ibn Budair's chronicle. This nicely paced book should also work very well in undergraduate and graduate courses on Muslim intellectual history, historiography, early modern Islam, and in surveys of Middle Eastern history. Here now is my conversation with Professor Dana Sajdi. Hello, Dana. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Dana. This uh, was such a wonderfully written uh, book uh, about a topic that uh, does not come under uh, much discussion usually. So I think you've really um, excavated a very important and interesting archive uh, here. And I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy uh, uh, listening to your thoughts about it as much as I enjoyed uh, uh, reading this book. So our, we have a tradition on uh, new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, Dana, could you please share with us a bit about uh, how uh, did you become uh, a scholar uh, of, uh, you know, Muslim societies, uh, interested in uh, uh, the kind of project that you did here? Can, can you give us a sense of the story of how you became a scholar? Um, actually, I was very not interested in history as an undergraduate at, in Cairo. And, um, and I did cartwheels to um, be able to skip the general requirement that I had to take. Except the first Gulf War um, brought about all kinds of um, student activities that made me question um, a lot of what were truths in my life, uh, especially Arab nationalism. I grew up in a household where my parents were diehard Arab nationalists. And of course, as a result, I mean, it comes with it that they're anti-colonialists. And uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser was like a, a kind of a, a god. We almost had a shrine for him. And so I just started questioning things about what I thought were truths. And that led me to questioning nationalism, um, which led me to think I should read history. And that's what led me to go to grad school to do uh, um, uh, medieval history, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started. Now, let's begin with the title of this book, uh, which is The Barber of Damascus, Nouveau Literacy in the 18th Century Ottoman Levant. Uh, Could you describe uh, for our listeners a bit, uh, we'll come to the barber in a moment, 
But this mm-hmm. concept of nouveau literacy, uh, what what do you uh, mean by that, and how does it connect to the central sort of conceptual uh, theme of this book and the kind of argument that you try to uh, craft? Um, yes. So nouveau literacy actually comes from the very horrid term nouveau riche, which is what you know the French term that the aristocracy used to basically denigrate mm-hmm. um, those socially mobile people who arrived um, into their circles. And um, it is a very derogatory term that um, uh, kind of looks at um, the incapacity of newly arrived or arrivés to um, to conduct themselves with the cultural knowledge and the grace and the decorum that was asked of them. And so, generally speaking, they would overdo or underdo something and commit gaffes and faux pas. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a very jarring and terrible term, and it's a very classist one, mm-hmm. except that I thought that was it was a very interesting way to view new arrivals into new spaces, whether textual or cultural. And so for me, um, the, the, the kind of historical uh, learned elite of Islamic history are the ulama. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones who know. They're the ones who have been arrogated the, you know, the, the space of the text, and especially um, the space of history, the history writing. Usually they wrote about themselves to themselves or about the state. Um, and so for me, seeing these people who are of really unusual backgrounds, uh, whether it's the barber of, or two soldiers or um, a Samaritan scribe or a Greek Orthodox priest arrive into this textual space of the Chronicle, um, they arrive with their baggage and their own cultural backgrounds. And Excuse me. From the point of view of the learned alim, these people were really arrivists, as they did not entirely uh, understand or were conditioned in um, the kind of social practices of the ulama, uh, which had you know inducted them into the kind of it's not a closed world, but it's a cultural space of the ulama. So these people arrive with what they know and um, you know kind of dare to 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 enter textual space and write with whatever uh, kind of knowledge and knowledge of languages they have. And so they commit kind of gaffes and faux pas that would not have been acceptable uh, from an island. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as we come to the main uh, protagonist, uh, so to say, of your story, the Barber of Damascus, um, a couple of things I would be interested in uh, have you talk about. One is, who is this bar- uh, barber that you uh, talk about, Ibn Budair? Uh, could you introduce him to our listeners? And also, it was a very interesting story in the book about how you uh, stumbled upon this text and how you were able to do a paper trail of sorts of try- finding the manuscript on which uh, uh, on which this mm-hmm. book is based. So if you could also, in introducing the author and the the barber to us, uh, if you could also say a bit about how you stumbled upon the barber and this text. Um, okay, so the barber, Shehabuddin uh, Ahmed ibn Budair, uh, lived um, up till 1760, 1761. Mm-hmm. So in the kind of first half of the 18th century. And, uh, he, and he wrote a chronicle, that is a history of the daily events uh, in the city of Damascus where he lived. What is interesting about him is that he was a practicing barber who owned a barber shop uh, for most of his life in um, inside the city walls in a neighborhood called Babel Berid. But what is interesting about him is that 
uh, he does not come from a family of barbers. He actually comes from a family of porters and was born a good kilometer away from the walled city of Damascus in the neighborhood of Qubaybat. And so um, what is interesting about this guy is that, you know, uh, at best he's of the middling sort. Um, and judging from his background, he was probably, he was probably kind of lived in a, uh, grew up in a poor family. And his arrival to Damascus and to the barber shop seems to have a, been an interesting serendipity whereby he found a good um, a master barber who was located in a very uh, kind of shishi part of town and at whose hands he apprenticed. So because he lived, or at least I believe, he practiced in that part of the city mm-hmm. and a lot of the customers of his master barber were um, of the ulama and the awliya or, you know, kind of the Sufi masters um, of the area. And because the location of the barber shop was in a very prestigious precinct of Damascus where all the very important educational institutions stood, including the Umayyad Mosque, Mm -hmm. it seems that he um, mixed with this cultural elite and it seems that he... um, started getting educated informally through them, whether it is at the madrasas nearby or uh, just an informal setting, um, he was more than literate and he was very well read and he studied with very important ulama. Mm -hmm. And while this kind of uh, literacy and knowledge by artisans has been um, recorded, uh, for you know, kind of in Islamic societies from the medieval period, as shown by Konrad Hirschler in his book *The Written Word*, mm-hmm. for someone mm-hmm. to take the extra step and write a book takes a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. And so um, he was just a practicing barber who decided to write a history book. So that's the short answer. <laughs> right, right, right. And how, how did you? How did you? Uh, um, um, uh, stumble on on the barber and uh, then go about finding the manuscript. Uh, can you say a bit about your story also of how you? Uh, began so there, yeah. So an edited and bodlerized version of the barber's text uh, has been edited and published in the 1950s in Cairo. Right. So for those of us who do 18th century Levant. All of us know this text. And the text had been edited and bodlerized by an alim of the early 20th century called Muhammad Saeed al-Qasimi, who really, as he says, I refined uh, the text and removed what was unnecessary. And so um, kind of our, our conversation in the field was, uh, you know, we wish we had found the original. Uh, we wonder what it would have been like to hear the original voice of the barber. So as a source for history, it was quite well known for a while. Mm-hmm. And so either way, I had started working on this phenomenon of the writing of history by unusual people in the 18th century, and I was planning to use the edited version despite the fact that it was edited. Mm -hmm. But halfway through my dissertation, I was researching um, in the University of Jordan in the Center for um, Archives and Manuscripts with my... um, for the person who was very close to me, Shahab Ahmed, who had just passed away, unfortunately. And um, his, uh, 
His way of doing things is, is just absolutely reading everything. While I was going through manuscript catalogs, looking at history and literature mm-hmm. um, catalogs only, at a certain point I got sick of his just sitting there and doing, you know, kind of all day and just, you know, sitting with these books that I went out to kind of uh, for a fresh of breath, uh, for a breath of fresh air. And he comes out to me and he says, look what I found. And basically in a miscellaneous book, uh, uh, a kind of volume from the Chester Beatty Library Collection, he found um, the manuscript of the barber. And so I immediately ordered a microphone copy from Jordan and had, and started working on it and realized how different it was or how significantly different it was from the 19th century version that I, after I finished my dissertation, I decided to redo the book with a barber as the central protagonist. Very interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll come to the text in a moment and the key mm-hmm. uh, the content and materiality of the text that you also talk about in excellent mm-hmm. detail. Let's think a bit about the context that you also spend a lot of time uh, detailing in this book. And one of the key terms that one finds in, in, the, in terms of the context of the 18th century Damascus is the idea of disorder and disorders of different kinds that you talk about. The, liter- mm-hmm. the literary disorder, political disorder, and so on. Uh, so could you share with us a bit about w- what this form of disorder uh, looked like that, that uh, was the context or the, uh, the backdrop uh, to, this, to this text? Sure. So Damascus and actually the entire eastern, actually the entire eastern Mediterranean was undergoing a, a, a great socio-economic and hence social change. Um, what is happening at the time is that the Ottoman kind of authorities, the Sultan, you know, the the, the ruling, you know, the powers that be. Um, in order to manage this empire and because of all the threats that are around them, they decided to decentralize. And decentralization meaning um, they kind of devolved fiscal and political rights from center to periphery. And what happened because of that is what we understand in, you know, Ottoman historians as the age of the Aryan or the notables. Local ruling families uh, rose to power as a result of this decentralization, and most of the provi- provinces were ruled by local families. Mm-hmm. In the Damascus, which was a, itself the capital of the province of Damascus, the famous Al-Azm family who were locals uh, became the governors not only of Damascus as the province, but also they became the leaders of the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is a huge prestige and responsibility. So the sultan kind of devolves his responsibility of being the you know kind of the religious leader of the ummah towards Mecca and and gives it to the Azam governors. So this is happening politically, but of course fiscally, um, the institution of Mali Kane comes about, which is basically tantamount to. Um, to almost private ownership of land, which historically had not been the case. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people um, started making a lot of money. 
Um, and there was an influx of wealth that probably is unprecedented. Meanwhile, uh, the area was also integrating into kind of the world capitalist system, as shown by Bshara Dumani and many other scholars, and kind of uh, became much more integrated into the trade with Europe, especially uh, with the cotton and tobacco and silk on the eastern Mediterranean. And so there was an influx of wealth and kind of uh, how, you know, families or households, um, new households forms around richer families. And so um, it's like the Rockefellers have moved to town. As a result of this, um, Damascus itself witnessed an interesting urban change, which is the kind of materialization of these households in their production of these huge mansions in the city. And so what we know about Damascus as the old city, really all these mansions, most of them come from the 18th century. So historically, historians have, or, you know, in the past three decades, historians have talked about the 18th century as the century of the notables, Mm. um, as the rise of these new local powers. To me, that was not a a description that was uh, comprehensive enough, because with the rise of these people, you know, they come with new networks. And what happens is that it's not just families rise and the rest of society remains the same. There's really a lot of um, rise and fall and lateral moves also. So I see this period um, as a period of social change, of um, a changing order, really, politically, uh, economically, and socially. And so the Ariane model does not really, or the, no, the, not, the, the model of the notables does not really explain a lot of what is going on. It's merely showing the tip of the iceberg. So I see this period as a period with, where a lot of people are experiencing social change. And of course, because things are changing, um, as it is the human habit, which is to be fearful of change, a lot of people saw this as a time of disorder, as a time where old values, um, um, the old social system, uh, the way that things had been, you know, had always used to be done, are no longer, um, um, are no longer um, kind of, um, they're, they're not being perpetuated. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of fear, and as a result, there's a lot of expression of that fear that things are upside down, that, you know, it's apocalyptic descriptions of men turning into women and, uh, and, and being the end of time. And so that disorder, disorder is perceived not only in the changing urban environment on the ground, so so the you know kind of the the, the architect not the architecture the topography is changing, but also we see that expressing itself in the literary topography, where the hegemony of the alim over history mm-hmm. and here I'm not saying that the alim was always hege- he- he- kind of um, he- did not have hegemony over everything. I mean we have many instances of different where other people come in. But in the 18th century, specifically in Syria, this is the first time that we see so many people who are not of ulama background, who are coming into the text that have historically been uh, monopolized by the Mm alim. And so there is a literary disorder that happens. 
um, whereby there are new authors from different backgrounds. Some of them are from commoner, kind of middle, middling sort backgrounds. Some others are not. But still, these are people who are experiencing a change in social position. Right. Um, yeah, let me... Let me uh pick up on, on on this point, I think one of the things that I really found very interesting and conceptually exciting about this book uh, was the way you connected uh, new ways of imagining history uh, and new actors who now were writing history with the uh, contestations or shifting ways in which authority itself was being imagined, religious authority or social authority and so on. So could you say a bit more about this particular point of how uh, non-olama uh, chronicle writers emerged uh, in the public sphere. Uh, one of the things that you do in this book is you give a whole genealogy of these different genres within Arabic literature. So this book really operates at the interstices of history and, and, and literature in very exciting ways. Uh, mm-hmm. But could you say a bit more about how this happens, how this happens, this emergence of non-olama chronicle uh, writers um, and, and what, are, what is the significance of this shift that takes place uh, in this time period that you're studying? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, because I was uh, trained as a medievalist, I had read all the chronicles of the Mamluk uh-huh. and the Ubid period. Right. And so I couldn't help myself but go back there to right. start with. A lot of people have kind of said, why do you go back so far? You know, well, that was so, very useful. That was very useful, yeah, actually. Yeah. Yes, yes. And it's just because of my training. And I'm always, um, and I, I always think in the, in the long durée, if you will. Right. So what was very intriguing to me is that, you know, historically, the chronicle, as we know it, by a Tabari, in its kind of canonical form, is very much tied to Hadith studies, and uh, and the biographical dictionary is very tied to Hadith studies. Um, um, so the historical report, when it was produced, it had to come with a chain of isnad, of authorities um, who have heard it from one another. So while with time, this chain of this isnad, this chain of authorities was removed from the historical text, I um, keep on kind of insisting that the transmission of knowledge from an, you know, kind of an authoritative historian to his student remained as an expression of that isnad through the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, kind of because of the kind of necessity of oral transmission for the certification of authority, um, the ulama remained a relatively close system of transmitters of texts, including historical texts. And so what is interesting is that sometime between the 11th and 15th century, things happen slightly differently, partly because of the change into kind of the post-caliphate condition with the rise of the sultanates and the whole uh, kind of uh, um, social and, and cultural dynamic around them, including the creation of the institution of the college, etc. There's a lot that happens there. And despite the fact that there's a loosening of authority, history remains one whereby your teacher authorizes you to transmit the text. Um, But by the end of the 15th century, um, another thing happens where finally you don't. Um, you, you don't transmit the text of your teacher, you actually are allowed to write your own text of history, and you're allowed for the first time to actually write about contemporary history. Hmm. So there's a loosening of this kind of authority. 
that is transmitted and where you have to be a compiler and a transmitter rather than original author. But then after that, in the Mamluk period, most of the people who wrote chronicles wrote them as um, sequels, what is a veil or a tale (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. of their teacher's uh, texts up till the 16th century. Um, then after that, we start finding people writing texts without referring referring to an older master or, see, uh, or, or, or imagining the text as the sequel of their master's uh, text. So I kind of um, conjecture that this is probably in large part um, due to the overwhelming um, kind of influence of Sufism, whereby um, kind of every, the idea of becoming close to the divine and communicating to the, with the divine mm-hmm. has allowed people to talk about their daily experiences to either a Sufi master or to the divine himself. Mm-hmm. And so these new first-person uh, narratives emerged in throughout the Ottoman world, actually. And um, some of them are dream uh, diaries, others are personal diaries, and others are something... And so they're very close to chronicles in the sense that people are writing about events with dates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of the importance of talking about your dreams, about kind of communicating Communicating what is happening to you uh, becomes very, very pervasive, and we even have women um, who start doing that, which is while talking to their murshid, to their um, Sufi sheikh, they will write down their dreams. Um, so this becomes a part and parcel of everyday life and allows a lot of people to speak, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think it's very, and, and because of the genre of the dream diary is so close to the genre of the chronicle, it's really a very, very uh, short step to go from one to the other. So let's come to the, the to, to the to the text to the chronicle um, mm. of uh, of Ibn Budair. Uh, could you share with us a bit about what this text contains? One of the things that I found very interesting is uh, that there is a narrative of decay, a narrative of um, uh, of a, let's call it a moral fallenness, which is actually mm. talked about in a in a language of emasculation. So it's a very gendered kind of language, and this mm. is happening as you show very nicely that. This is happening at a time of tremendous boom. Otherwise, in terms of people coming out for picnics and uh, mm-hmm. the, the you know the the, uh, uh, the infrastructure is, is going out of bounds and so on. So anyway, so so could you share with us a bit what this text contains? What are the kinds of things that are remembered and documented in this mm-hmm. text? So what is really interesting is that it's one of the most alarmist texts that you will ever read. Uh-huh. It is about. Um, you know, the impending disaster um, and, you know, things that are happening uh, that are traumatic and uh, huge. So I I don't know if I'm exaggerating, but about half of the text is a listing of the prices of the produce and goods in Damascus. And it's all accompanied with alarm about price inflation. And a lot of it is about, you know, the usual subjects of the arrival and departure of political personalities or the arrival and departure of the pilgrimage caravan or the, you know, the, the, the arrival of the, um, um, of the, what is called the kind of Egyptian, um, 
treasury, which is what uh, Egypt um, owes to the Ottoman uh, to Istanbul. So it comes, you know, so their revenue comes in a in a in a on a caravan that comes through Damascus. So these rituals, state rituals, what I call, are also present, like in any other Alam chronicle in the barbarous text. But there's always something wrong with them. It's either the pilgrimage uh, had been attacked, or there was like a flood on the way. Um, and so even these state rituals are alarmist. But the other stuff that he talks about are just daily events, things that happen in the city. Some of them are hearsay. Some of them the barber himself had witnessed. And, you know, whether it's an earthquake or um, a, a, um, what is it called? Um kind of um, a clash between the military factions of Damascus, which was a perennial problem. Um, uh, so everything came with alarm. But also, he was one to report about unusual social events like sexual scandals, infidelities, things of the sort, some, some stuff that you would never read in an island chronicle. But all of it, almost all of it is in the vein of complaints and in the vein of the idea of things are upside down right now. Mm. And most interesting about his text is the way that he de- deals with governors and, um, and officials um, in, in most chronicles, the year will start with who the governor is, who the sultan is, and these kind of official positions usually give some kind of regularity to the text that the political order is being perpetuated. It's there and there is some stability. In the barbarous text, they only enter to be held accountable right. and to kind of, he tells their scandals, whether they were um, hoarders of grain or if they, you know, kind of built these huge mansions to the deprivation of their neighbors, things of the sort. So what is interesting about the text is that it includes a lot of the usual events, but it's kind of the general um, um, kind of thrust of it is very alarmist. Mm -hmm. And what makes it even more dramatic is that a lot of the prose is in rhyme prose, which okay. gives it a very theatrical uh, kind of um, um, tone, if you will. Right, right. And let, let me mention in passing here for our listeners that uh, your book contains some very, um, um, you know, um, excellent uh, visuals of the of the text, and you very um, helpfully and nicely. Uh, uh, shown the readers the kind of rhyming uh, prose that that is found in the text, and I think uh, both readers of Arabic and also non-Arabic readers will benefit much from the actual uh, primary text that you give in uh, transliteration. So, so that's a very useful and helpful part of this of this book. Mm-hmm. Adana, could you say a bit about uh, you 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 speculate in the book about the reception of this text, and you speculate that you know although since we find. Uh, you know, some manuscripts of this text, uh, so the readership may have been limited, but you also say that this text may have been performed orally, that it might have had an oral life <clears> that <throat> we don't know about, it may have been performed, and it must mm-hmm. have some kind of reception, right? And that's something that you wrestle with. Could you say a bit mm-hmm. about, about that speculation or what you think was the kind of reception that this text received and, and uh, the kind of audience that you think it might have reached? Okay, so let me start with something that I ignored to say earlier, which I should have said earlier, that the unique manuscript of the Barber's Chronicle is found at the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin. Right. So the 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 um, the ma- the microfilm that I worked on was was um, uh, was at the at Jordan University, but the actual original is at Dublin. Mm-hmm. 
So not only the barber's text, but the other five people that I visit briefly in the book who had written, who wrote these chronicles. Um, at best, there's one or two manuscripts of each. So it's not like these uh, texts have been so um, in, in the traditional way where we evaluate popularity and circulation of texts. We always think, how many manuscripts are there of the text? And if there's a lot, we think, okay, it's well received. But if there's not many, then we can either conclude it was not popular, or I think the fact of the kind of difficulty of preservation of text, we cannot necessarily go to that conclusion. The kind of the absence of these uh, of manuscripts does not necessarily mean that the text itself was not received. So grounding myself on this kind of conclusion that um, all these people, first of all, are writing these chronicles, but there's not many manuscripts of them. So my question is, how come all these people who are from very different areas are contributing to this historical discourse and they're not even aware of each other's chronicles. It leads me to think that the the genre itself was a popular genre to appropriate, to appropriate, that people understood that they could just write it. So they must have um, heard other chronicles, understood that that this is something that you could do. So even if we don't have textual evidence for it, it's clear that all these people were familiar with these texts. But also, both the Barber's text and another one of the texts that I deal with in the book, which is by a soldier, the incredible storytelling aspects of them and the rhyme uh, that is included in the Barber's text leads me to believe that these may have been transmitted orally. Um, in the barber's case, it's, the conjecture becomes even closer because, um, you know, he, he worked most of his life at a barber shop, and the barber shop is the sister institution of the coffee shop. And in the Ottoman period, um, whether in Istanbul or in Damascus, these are sister institutions, and in Damascus, they were actually always next to each other. <clears throat> And so we know that the coffee shop, um, um, shadow theater was always performed or storytelling was, was always kind of the kind of entertainment that you got at a coffee house. And so the barbershop uh, often um, uh, acted or act, uh, was often used as a space that is similar to the coffee house. Right. And as such, the barber himself uh, would have been very familiar with the kind of epic stories that were told at the coffee house or the shadow theater that was performed. And what is interesting is the is the the master of the barber, um, the, um, uh, the the kind of the barber master of Ibn Budej was the brother of a very famous storyteller. So my conjecture is that these people, uh, especially in the barber's case, that he, um, his whole formation was very much a storyteller's formation, but at the same time he read texts, and as a result he fused the two with a view that you know, anything that is going to be published is going to be performed orally, whether it is uh, an ulama text or not, to start with. But it is about the location where it is published. So it might have been pub- published or kind of told in a coffee house or a barber shop. Um, and so the fact that we don't have many copies of the 
barbers or any of the other authors of the period does not mean that their texts have not circulated. Right. Um, Is that, uh, am I get, did I get, oh, yeah, did absolutely. I answer you? Yes? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, let, let's come to something that you mentioned earlier in the beginning of our conversation, and I want to come back to uh, mm. uh, Muhammad uh, Saeed al-Qasimi's uh, emendation or alteration of this text, and you know the author from whom we get the printed version that modern mm. historians have received this. And you do a very interesting reading of the kinds of alterations and emendations that he that he mm. uh, makes on on Ibn Budair's text. Could you say a bit about those emendations and changes that he brings about? And what are some of the things that he found in Ibn Budair's text that he found problematic, that he tried to omit or tried to rework? Could you say a bit about that process of reworking and what that says about a new kind of uh, 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 you know, political and cultural sensibility that we find by the time of someone like uh, Al-Qasimi? Yes, thank. Um, so I should start with the end of your question rather than the beginning, which is, we, in order to understand Al-Qasimi's mentality, if you will, we have to understand that he is in the context of what has been called the Arab uh, Renaissance or the Nahda. This is a period of reform, whether it's Islamic or secular reform, a period of re-envisioning kind of Arabic literature and language. This is when modern standard Arabic was born. This is an idea kind of, of, there's a period where the Enlightenment ideals were integrated and uh, were being worked into um, both um, intellectual culture and um, religious culture, if you will. So Muhammad Sarid al-Qasimi and also the idea of science and progress had uh, become a very important idea. And so the Renaissance was about kind of self-rejuvenation and reinvention uh, to, to kind of uh, to, to progress in this modern world type of thing. And so Muhammad Saeed al-Qasimi was one of these, belonged to the circles of reformist ulama of Damascus. And he, uh, his family was very much um, a kind of... Um, an upper middle class family, if we can, we can speak about class in that period, who were just starting out to make kind of to become prestigious within the circles of the ulama, but they were not an old um, kind of ulama family of Damascus from the 18th century, and they were carving a place for themselves in the cultural and um, intellectual space of the city, and his son. Um, was a very famous reformist who actually um, um, participated in a global um, discourse uh, of reform. So Muhammad Saeed al-Qasimi was a kind of a renaissancing man, if you will, and a renaissance and a renaissancing man um, who uh, reflected that period. And this period was um, when people started looking at what came before them as tradition rather than as a continuity. And so by stumbling upon the text of the barber, for him that was a unique moment in the history of Damascus that needs to be preserved because of a new sensibility about tradition or turas, you know, what is inherited from the past. And so the way that he... Um, approaches the barber's text is one that um, looks to preserve history and his idea of history is really looking at the 
you know, sort of deeds of the new rulers of the 18th century. So rather than taking Ibn Budair for, you know, book for what it is as the expression of the ideas and the social and cultural world of a barber, Muhammad Said al-Qasimi was interested in Damascus in the 18th century itself and not in the author per se. And he was especially interested in the fact that the book of the barber recorded the rise of al Azm family, who were the semi-dynastic rulers um, of uh, the province of Damascus in the 18th century. So what he does is that he focuses on the political personalities and on the architectural and kind of topographical change that is happening in the city, rather than looking at the text of the barber as a voice. So for him, the barber's text, for Al-Qasimi, the barber's text is a container of history. And for me, the barber's text is a voice that one has to listen to. So as a result, what Al-Qasimi does with the text is, first of all, remove almost all rhyme because he didn't find it necessary for us as modern readers or 20th century readers um, to um, hear the barber's voice and his language um, and his sense of rhythm. That was not a priority. The second is that he changed a lot of the language. Um, The barber's language was interesting because it included a lot of colloquialism, a lot of what one would call hyper-corrections. So it was full of grammatic, what we consider today as grammatical and um, spelling errors. But the barber was really aware that he's writing in kind of some kind of high language, but also using his own voice at the same time. So it's a mix of high and low. And what Al-Qasimi does is he kind of neutralizes the language to make it uh, more um, kind of uh, um, in, in more in agreement with modern standard Arabic. And so he emits a lot of his colloquial or the barber's colloquialisms. He omits the rhyme and he omits a lot of the words in Turkish and Persian. He translates them into Arabic, basically. And so with the removal of all of these um, uh, idiosyncrasies, if you will, by the barber, the text is uh, at the hands of Al-Qasimi is much more monotone and much more standard. But in terms of the events and how he organizes the text, he tries to be as faithful as possible in terms of the chronological chronological um, flow of events. But he removes a lot of the barber's complaints because he finds it to be maybe boring for the reader that, you know, every kind of listing, of, and, and for example, it, it, he removes a lot of the um, price list that the barber had because he finds it boring for the, for, the, for the modern reader. But what is really, really interesting is he sometimes inserts his own words to glorify the rulers, Al-Azm, whom the barber took to task in his book. So what happens in the end is that he reverts the barber, um, the barber's text back to a very establishment text, one that celebrates the rulers and one that has the kind of, with the kind of, uh, how do you call it, with the intention of, of 
uh, of perpetuating the polity rather than questioning it. Now, in your conclusion, which is a very poignant conclusion, you talk about uh, the impact of uh, print and the emergence of the newspaper and print journalism on this genre of uh, the chronicle, and you talk about some important continuities and ruptures uh, that yeah. come about as a result of that. And, you know, the last line of your conclusion is so striking where you where you write, and this is on page 212, you write, uh, it is striking that after the adoption of the printing press, no barber ever wrote a history. Could you say a bit about that? Yes. Um, uh, the historiography is such that it really is kind of treats the 18th century as the end of the pre-modern period and the Arab Renaissance and Nahda as the beginning of the new period, as though these two, as though they were just completely in, kind of um, epistemologically disconnected. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my problem with that was that we see the modern period as um, kind of as as the result of the impact of Europe, of you know enlightened Europe, and hence the printing press as a part of this um, uh, uh, of this new influence, as though nothing before it. Um, you know, nothing in the 18th century had to do any, uh, with the 19th century. So, looking at Muhammad Saeed al-Qasimi, his son, who's a very famous reformist, Jamal al-Din, and a big contributor in print culture, and, you know, the, you know these are the kind of the typical Renaissance, you know, Nahda uh, um, agents. Um, to me, Jamal al-Din al-Qasimi would not have contributed to you know kind of to this movement without being informed of you know what his father himself was doing which is reading people like the barber mm-hmm. so what i'm trying to show is that these new genres and the post print genres like the the newspaper or the kind of the column are really not just new inventions that came with print and with looking at European uh, uh, genres, but they're really continuities of the Chronicle. After all, the Chronicle was about daily events. It really acted as a daily newspaper and was read out in public in coffee houses, exactly like the newspaper in the post in the Nahda and post Nahda period, which is it was you know, a daily events read out in public in coffee houses. So the social practices around both um, kind of um, uh, both, um, I don't want to call them forms, both modes of transmission were the same. So I see that the barbers, the barber and people like him really are the ones who opened the space for the modern intellectual who the historiography looks as a, just a new species, like a sui generis new species who's been enlightened and finally found the printing press and started, you know, spewing out these articles. I see that the, the hegemony of the ulama over the idea of the report, the historical report and the contemporary report, had been broken in the 18th century, which allowed the space for the modern intellectuals, these new reformists, to actually take up the space to write uh, outside the hegemony of the island. Um, and so I see that as a very important 
continuity that people should not uh, oversee. But what is really interesting is what while the printing press has always been kind of uh, qualified as the democratizer of knowledge, as the you know kind of as the propeller of the kind of new age of mass literacy what is really interesting about it is that well yes in the beginning it allowed new voices to appear um no barber ever wrote a history after the printing press mm. so to me it seems that some voice was suppressed with the arrival arrival of these new enlightened intellectuals where the you know kind of the the unusual voice um, uh, was no longer heard um, after the printing press. Uh, that, that's really fascinating. Uh, so as we're coming to the end of our time, Dana, could you share a bit uh, with us about what you're working on these days? What's the next uh, project? Okay, so one of the projects that I'm working on right now is editing the pa- Barber's Chronicle okay. um, to publish it. And my colleague, Steve Tamari, is going to do the translation and we're hoping to publish it as an English-Arabic um, uh, English and Arabic um, book. So I hope that my, my colleagues in the field will, um, it's just to be able to give this unusual text to undergrads and graduate students to be able to read it as a primary source. Mm-hmm. And so to allow the 18th century to be, um, to be uh, appreciated um, um, kind of in general Islamic history and Ottoman history. But my big research project now uh, started from my knowledge of Damascus in the 18th century and from reading about the topographical changes in the city in the 18th century. Um, I started knowing the city so well and that I'd imagined it, you know, meter by meter with even kind of imagining where crowds sat, where, you know, the Janissaries gathered, where people told stories, etc. And I realized that what I knew about Damascus in the 18th century had not existed earlier. So this led me to read um, uh, topographies of Damascus. These are, and I realized that there is a whole tradition of prose topographies of the city that start with Ibn, the famous history uh, by Ibn Asakir in the 12th century, and that goes on uninterrupted until basically the 21st century. So what I'm trying to do now is isolate and locate this tradition and understand what, you know, how people imagined and wrote about the city and what value they attached to the to the city and its parts and its building between the 12th century and the 19th century um, with a view of celebrating Damascus as a city and hopefully writing this project as a more popular project um, given the you know, the situation in Syria. I think the city needs to be celebrated and advertised. So the Barber of Damascus, Nouveau Literacy in the 18th Century Ottoman Levant uh, by Dana Sajdi, published by Stanford University Press in 2013. So thank you so much, Dana, for such a wonderful and lyrical uh, book and uh, for this conversation. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you today and also uh, learning from this uh, erudite and... uh, wonderfully written book thank you so much thank you thank you very much so this was my conversation with professor dana sajdi about her important and brilliant new book the barber of damascus i hope you enjoyed the conversation please also join us next time for another new episode of new books in islamic studies until then this is your host Sher ali tareen signing off 
Stay well, take care, and please keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.